Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and intrepid autopsy techs. Do we like this week's adjective? I like that, yeah. (laughs) We're intrepid this week. (laughs) This is called Alice Gets a Thesaurus, and we're just going to come up with new adjectives every time. We're your hosts and intrepid autopsy techs, Jess and Alice. We're going back to one of our personal favorite shows, Body of Proof, and we're watching Season 2, Episode 2, titled Hunting Party. Obviously, we'll be discussing gunshots, given the title of the episode, as well as head and spinal trauma. So let's get into it. We open with a group hunting, and it looks like a father and his adult children, and we see them all raise their guns to shoot a deer. But when the gun goes off, one of the daughters falls to the ground very dramatically and in, almost in slow-mo yeah. with blood all over her face. And we find out it wasn't a daughter. I assumed it was. It's his wife, who was very young. <laughs> that becomes like drama later. Right. But as I was writing these notes, I thought it was a daughter because <laughs> she's so young. <laughs> so his wife was the one that was yeah. supposedly shot. She fell very dramatically to the ground. Then the team arrives at the scene. So they arrive at the scene, and the victim's name is Julie Loeb, wife of Martin Loeb, who is a multi-millionaire. She was out hunting with her new husband and his two children. The bullet is a, quote, through and through, meaning that there's an exit and an entrance. This is what we would call a perforating gunshot wound, meaning that the bullet went in and came out and it's no longer inside the victim, whereas a penetrating gunshot wound is one where the projectile is still inside and there is no exit. From the cuts and abrasions, it looks like she tumbled as she fell. The detective says there's no way to determine the trajectory of the bullet or find the bullet out there in the middle of the woods, but Megan, Dr. Hunt, isn't too sure that the bullet killed her. She thinks it was the fall, but at least it was a quick death. So I give a green flag for the detective at the scene taking scene photos with his very nice camera that had an external flash, even though the flash didn't go off a single time, but it just looks very nice. Like he's taking pictures like click, 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 and there's no flash going off, but he has the flash on. So you are more experienced in forensic photography than I am. So it was daylight. He would still need the external flash. Yeah, it just brightens everything up. They were also, they were in the woods Mm -hmm. and... I felt like with all of the trees and branches, that creates shadow. True. I hadn't considered that. Very good. So the daughter says that Julie knew not to walk into someone's crosshairs, and Megan says she thinks that someone shot her on purpose. She notices a scratch on the husband's neck, and he says he got it on the underbush, but none of the other hunters have scratches. She gives him a tissue to wipe it off, and then slyly tells another detective that if he drops it later, she wants that as evidence. Back at the office, they start the autopsy. And we give a green flag because Dr. Hunt is pulling femoral blood for tox. I loved this detail. I feel like a lot of these shows never add that type of detail into like their autopsy scenes. Mm -hmm. So the reason that peripheral blood or femoral blood is preferred for postmortem toxicology is because drug concentrations in this type of blood will be closer to the antemortem levels than a cardiac blood draw would be. And all of that is due to the postmortem redistribution. So Megan notices that it looks like Julie did her own nails, which she finds odd because she was a, quote, trophy wife, and she feels like she would have expected a professional manicure out of her. And another green flag, because Dr. Hunt asks Peter to take a photo of the injuries on the decedent's hand, particularly her right ring finger nail bed being pushed down all the way to the bed. 
And there's also some type of pigment or paint on her elbow, which she swabs. And she also swabs the injured nail, which is another green flag because they're swabbing for any trace evidence. Megan's boss then comes in upset that Megan accused the decedent's husband of killing her. He's friends with the mayor, who is now also upset. Megan just is going on a whole spree of upsetting everybody. She did not care. She, this whole, uh, like, and I've noticed She's this. just like, I'm here to do my job. I don't care who I upset. She's like, I'm here to do my job and piss people off. And I'm done doing my job. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm only Kicking ass her. and taking names. <laughs> so she takes Megan off of this case and says that she'll be doing the work herself. Peter then finds out that Julie didn't come from money. She and Martin met a few years ago, and she didn't want to be involved with a married man. They didn't start dating until he was divorced with his first wife. Meanwhile, they're looking for a new transporter at the office. So a transporter is someone who goes to the scene and they're responsible for taking the body from the scene and transporting it to the morgue for autopsy. And we give a a huge green flag for this because I feel like a lot of these shows don't depict the transporter job in the morgue. And I thought it was really cool that they included this. I was so excited when they brought that up. I love that they're including this side of it. Yeah, because like our transporters are so awesome and uh, they see almost as much as we do yeah they see like the massive trauma at the scene they see severed limbs exposed brains legs bent the wrong way i love in the scene when he's interviewing people the one guy throws up as he's describing the job right i mean like they also you have to have a strong stomach to do that type of job with everything that you see and like interacting and just having a strong personality yeah but you also have to they said it in the episode you have to be a certain kind of person and i feel like our transporters 100% are this kind of person because they're super friendly and wonderful people and but they also have a strong stomach and can handle this kind of stuff but they also have to be able to communicate with the investigators any law enforcement that's at the scene and like they have to have a good relationship with all these people and the people that they work with and our transporters are amazing i love our transporters yeah so i love that this show gave recognition to their jobs because they do have a very important job all right next we just need to see autopsy techs we still haven't seen any freaking autopsy techs in any of these shows (laughs) there's just doctors on doctors on doctors there's no text to be seen i love the transporter representation now we need us now let's work (laughs) on autopsy tech representation (laughs) (laughs) so megan goes down to the tox lab even though she's off the case to ask them to run the dna on the tissue martin used to wipe his cut with the swab that she took off of julie's finger to see if it's a match Doing a digital scene recreation, a detective says that none of the other hunters, who are all in the room for questioning, had a direct line of sight with Julie. So either there is another shooter no one saw, or one of the hunters was lying. Megan comes in and says that Julie's blood was O positive, and the blood on her nail was B negative, and so was the blood on the tissue she collected as evidence from Martin. So she asks what they fought about. He said that she had no right to do that, but that Julie doted him and did things like tie his tie for him or put on his hunting jacket. She must have had a hangnail when she helped him and cut his neck. So back at autopsy, Megan's boss is continuing the autopsy and says the bullet blew up the C4 vertebrae, which is the fourth vertebrae in your cerebral column, aka your neck, and it transected or cross-cut the spinal cord. The detective says that Megan said it was the fall that killed Julie, not the bullet. The other doc says that if you want to be technical about it, the path of the bullet missed the vertebral arteries, which are 
all of the arteries that supply blood to the brain and spine, and they're named for their location along the vertebrae. And it was the bone fragments that lacerated or teared it during the fall. She then finds foreign matter under the neck. The investigator goes to photograph, and the doc holds up a scale underneath the wound on the neck, so we also give that a green flag for photographing and for using the scale. So scales are super important in our photos because they provide the viewer with an idea of the size of the mark or impression or laceration, etc. They also allow the examiner to enlarge the photo to its natural size for comparison purposes, and without a scale, it's really difficult to compare the characteristics of the evidence. So the doc swabs the wound around the neck, and the report comes back on Julie's blood, and it's negative for drugs, alcohol, or medication. But there were elevated levels of HCG, meaning she was pregnant, and this is now a double homicide. So HCG, or human chorionic gonadotropin, is produced by the placenta during pregnancy, and it helps support and thicken the uterine lining to support the embryo. Megan is assigned a different case, And this is a man found downtown, killed by blunt force trauma, which is injury due to a forceful impact, fall, or a physical attack with a dull object. And he was hit in the head. So the two detectives go to question Martin Loeb's business partner, and he said that he knew she was pregnant, but that Martin didn't know. She was waiting to tell him until the three-month threshold. She had confided in the business manager because she wanted financial advice, She wanted to make sure that her and her children would be taken care of, meaning that she wanted to make sure that she and any children she had with Martin were in Martin's will. The detectives think that Martin's ex-wife and his two children from that marriage would probably not be happy about the new heiress being brought into Martin's will, and Martin's ex-wife has hunting experience too. In fact, according to the business manager, she was the one that got Martin into hunting in the first place. Megan is at the blunt force trauma scene with a forensic pathology fellow from the lab and a little info on fellowships in case anyone is listening doesn't really know what that is. So after med school residency, you do either like one to three years of fellowship and this year or so is in your field of specialty. So this fellow, he is a pathology fellow because he wants to become a forensic pathologist. I also just love calling someone a fellow because it just sounds like you're a saying- A dapper gentleman. Exactly. It's just like this pathology fellow. Like he's just the pathology <laughs> dude. He's just the pathology guy. And it's like, no, he's he's in a program. He's very, very smart. He's, he's no, he's, he's worked very hard to be this pathology fellow, but it just, I don't know why I always chuckle when I hear it. So he says that she doesn't need him and that she needs a medical legal death investigator. And we've talked about this before in previous episodes, but a death investigator is trained to respond to death scenes and to investigate why someone died and to collect evidence at the scene. So we work with our deputy coroners all the time. They're great. It's a very important job. And he asks about the investigator's job, and Megan says that they interview witnesses, photograph scenes, and secure the scene. And we also give a green flag for them photographing this scene. So police officers at this scene tell them that the victim is Patrick DeLine, age 33. He is well-dressed, well-groomed, and looks like he was caught in a bad part of town. They think he came looking for drugs and then he was attacked and carjacked. But Megan checks his forearms and doesn't see any signs of shooting drugs and will give this a green flag because in any suspected overdose case, we will also look for track marks or anything on forearms. And we also photograph forearms in certain cases just to be sure that there's nothing there. Sometimes you can see like past bruising too if they've been shooting up for a while. Yeah. And then 
she also finds his car keys in his pocket. So he wasn't carjacked. But she does just kind of reach in and grab them and throw them at the police officers without gloves, which iffy. I don't know if they technically need those as evidence, but I wouldn't touch anything on the body without gloves. So we're going to give a red flag. Just to be cautionary, because you don't really know what's on them. Just because we've given too many, not too many, they've deserved all these green flags, but we've given a lot of green flags this episode. So just throw a red one in there for flair. The detectives go to question Martin's ex-wife and his children about the hunting case. And the wife admits to hate, the ex-wife, sorry, the ex-wife admits to hating her ex-husband for divorcing her for someone younger after 25 years of marriage. But she said she didn't kill Julie and that she made out just fine in the divorce and that she doesn't think she's still in his will. So she'd have no motive to go after Julie's heirs if she's not in the will. So the detectives go to question the two people who are still in the will, which are Martin's children. And the daughter says her mother was angry, but who wouldn't be? And she says they wouldn't be threatened by new heirs in their will because of how much their father is worth. There's plenty to go around between multiple heirs is basically what she was saying. The son finally chimes in and says that they weren't happy about the divorce and didn't give Julie a warm welcome. But he also says that it was clear that their dad loved Julie and that she was the love of his life. The investigator did a paternity test on Julie's embryo and found out that Martin Loeb was not the father. Q. Maury. the Jerry Springer Jerry, Rest in peace, Jerry Springer. He just died. And uh, But I always watched Maury growing up. You are not, not the, the father. father. <laughs> what I thought immediately when I heard this. So the detectives tell Martin that Julie was pregnant and he didn't know, but said that they had been trying. They also ask if he knew that he wasn't the father. They think that Martin found out that the baby wasn't his and that Julie was still trying to write this baby into his will and so that would be motive to kill her. But he says that five years ago he had a prostate surgery and now he's sterile. But he knew Julie wanted children and so she was going to a sperm bank with his blessing. They ask if he knew which one. And he said he might have given his blessing, but he, quote, didn't want to know every detail, which I thought was weird. Right? It's not like she's having an affair. She's going to a sperm bank. It's not that sexy. Like, wouldn't you just want to know which one she was going to? You don't, even, you don't have to know what the potential father's going to look like, but. I like, she didn't even just say where she was going. I text my boyfriend where I'm going all the time. Just like, hey, I'm going here now. And now I'm here. She's just like disappearing throughout the day. And he's just assuming, oh, she must be at this unknown sperm bank that I don't want to know anything about. She must be at the sperm bank in an undisclosed location. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to knock him because it seems like he was very supportive of her and her wanting children and her of being able to do that in any way she saw fit. But I just thought it was odd that he didn't want to know the details because he was making it seem like she was having some kind of illicit affair. And I'm like, I don't think going to the sperm bank is that sexy. He's on board <laughs> with it, but to a degree. Yeah, yeah. So back to the other case, Megan is starting Patrick DeLine's autopsy. She says it looks like he had a depressed skull fracture to the occiput and temporal parietal regions. So the occiput is the back of the head or the skull, and the temporal and the parietal regions are the bones on, like, the side of your skull. And these fractures caused massive cerebral contusions, a.k.a. areas of bleeding on the surface of the brain, and this also probably caused a fatal brainstem injury. The detectives say that Patrick was an interior decorator slash house flipper, and they spoke to his husband, and he said that Patrick was in the neighborhood to look for a loft to renovate. Megan swabs his sweater for Trace and also swabs his nails. She finds something under his nails and she puts it under the microscope and it looks like paint. The investigators from the hunting scene 
went to six sperm banks. It's not even that many. Like, this husband couldn't have just gone yeah, to eat any one of these six. Maybe he was sensitive because he couldn't father the children. I'm being very judgy, but I thought, I was like... I am being judgy. I think he's being petty. We're both being a little judgy. That's why we <laughs> like each other. That's <laughs> why we get along so great. That's why we're best. <laughs> So the investigator from this case, he went to like six sperm banks in the area and And the whole team, he told the whole team and they're all making fun of him. There was a whole scene of them just making jokes. You look pale. <laughs> I was just gonna say that. You look a little pale. You sit down, you good? Six <laughs> sperm I was laughing that whole Ooh. scene. I loved I loved that bit. And after all of this looking, he finally found the one that Julie went to, but she left empty handed. He also went to the IVF clinic that she was referred to, and they said that when she arrived, she had a sperm sample on ice, but they didn't know who it was. That's sketchy. I was thinking that, but again, I don't know you how- You just show up with a cup of sperm? And like, I know who and how she got it later, but I'm just like- When I was first watching this, I was like, nobody's questioning how or why she's just showing up with this cup. I, and I know this- <laughs> Probably isn't how she showed up with it, and I'm just picturing like a Dixie cup, like yeah, <laughs> or like one of the cups that you like pee in at the doctor's. See, that would be better. I'm picturing like a little Dixie cup that like you get from like a little water cooler. <laughs> <laughs> Got it from her office. I know. I'm like just picturing her picking that up, and <laughs> I'm sure it was something different. Otherwise, maybe they would have asked. Uh, they weren't specific, so let's go with Dixie Cup. It also has the word dicks in it, so it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> We're adults here, guys, I promise. <laughs> I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> Megan then comes in and says she thinks her case, Patrick Deline, is the father of Julie's baby. The drama. So the pigment that was found on Julie's elbow and on Patrick under his nail is high-end paint that is only available to interior designers. Patrick was gay and he was married in a happy marriage, so she doesn't think that they were having any kind of affair. But she thinks Julie asked him to be a donor. So they go to question Patrick's husband, and he tells them that Patrick and Julie were best friends from high school. She had come over a few months ago and said she didn't want the child of her father to be a stranger, so she said that she wanted it to be Patrick. Julie didn't tell Martin because Martin's ex-wife would have been upset because Patrick used to decorate her house a few years back and one day he brought Julie over and that's how Martin and Julie met. So Alexandra, aka the ex-wife, never forgave Patrick and they didn't want her finding out that he was the biological father of Julie's child. So they ask if Patrick had done any painting recently, and the husband said that he had a studio space nearby and painted there all the time. So back at the lab, they were able to find out that Patrick was beaten with a tire iron made in Germany for high-end car brands. The trace from Patrick's shirt came back for a residue of calcium or saliva, and they think it's from like milk or ice cream. We do find out what it's from later. It's not milk or ice cream. <laughs> Spoiler alert. They have epithelials, which are basically just the surface cells that cover the inside or outside surfaces of the body so you have like epithelial cells on your skin or in your cheek or anywhere and so they can test those but the bad news is they don't know what to test them against so they will start by ruling out patrick as a source of the epithelial cells and they will also tell the detective to see if alexandra has a german car the detectives go with a crime scene unit to investigate alexandra's car and she comes out angrily demanding who told them that she had it out for patrick and she thinks it's martin 
and she said that he lied all during their marriage, especially about money. He hid artwork and cars, and he even had a secret yacht. How do you have a secret yacht? How do you hide that? I mean, I guess it's possible if you have it, like, docked at a marina somewhere, but just, like... You're just going away for a long weekend. Oh, honey, I'll be back in five days. Yeah, when did he use the secret yacht without her knowing? I don't know. So the crime scene team is unable to find any blood or hair in the car or any sign that it had been cleaned recently. So the detectives start to think that maybe Martin was lying to Julie about his assets too, just as he had lied to Alexandra, and that maybe that was his motive to kill her. The lab results came back for the foreign material that the doc had found around Julie's neck at autopsy. It appeared that when Julie landed, some of her stomach contents migrated up her esophagus. But there was also pollen from a rare kind of oak tree that is not around now. So how did that get in her wound? And did she ingest it? Like, why is it there? So Megan thinks that the pollen was deposited there by the bullet as it grazed a leaf on its way to the target. That is just bonkers. So now they can find out where the shooter was standing. They bring back a leaf from a tree near where the shooter was probably standing, and one of the leaves had hairspray or some kind of hair residue on it that smelled, so Megan thought it smelled like something that was Erica's, who was Martin's daughter. But there's a compound in the mixture that says it isn't hairspray. It's minoxidil, which is something that some men use to stimulate hair growth. So calcium was found on the trace in Patrick's shirt, and calcium is the main ingredient in antacid tablets, and a side effect of acid reflux is coughing, aka expelling saliva. So the whoever attacked Patrick probably coughed, and that's why the calcium and the saliva was on the shirt. It wasn't ice cream. It was antacid tablets. They bring in the business manager for questioning because he was balding and he was always coughing when they were talking to him. He knew that Julie questioning Martin's assets would cause an audit and reveal that this business manager had been stealing from Martin for years. He says he didn't set out to steal from Martin and he needed a loan in a hurry for a business deal. The deal went under and he couldn't repay, so he fixed the books to cover his tracks. Martin never questioned it, and then it just became easy to steal from him. Julie became suspicious when the business manager was dragging his feet on the audit that she asked for, and she was going to recommend that Martin find another business manager. He couldn't let that happen, so he killed Julie. The day Julie was killed, Patrick came into the office. Because Julie had confided in Patrick that she didn't trust the business manager, so Patrick was suspicious of him and demanded to know what happened. So he followed Patrick downtown and killed him too. Martin hears this whole confession, and as they are arresting the business manager, Martin comes out and shoots and kills him in the middle of the police station. It's crazy. Also, there's a detail I forgot to add at the end of the notes here. They find Patrick's painting studio, and they find a camera set up there, and they find a very sweet tape of Patrick and Julie painting a baby's crib together, and that's how they both had paint on them. I forgot to include that detail. Mostly because it it did make me cry because they're like talking to this unborn child and now they're both deceased and it was very sad. But that's also ties back to why there was the high-end paint on both of them. I realized I forgot to add that in the notes. I just couldn't believe that this dude seriously shot this man in the middle of the police station with about 10 cops around. He knew what he was doing. And then he was like, you finally have something to arrest me for. I know, because they were going after him the whole episode. I mean, so mm-hmm. was I. I totally thought he did it too. I thought he did it. It's yeah. always the husband. It always is. Except for when it's not, but then it was. <laughs> Still is. <laughs> it wasn't the husband, but then he got found for a different murder that he did in front of everyone. And he said, 
because I thought this too. He's like, the money I could have forgiven, but you killed Julie. Like, how was that the solution? It's not. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. I know. I know it's not a real story, but it was tragic. <laughs> so obviously, there was a bunch of crazy details in the episode, and the whole investigation of the hunting, quote, accident made us think of the case of Mark Harshbarger. In September of 2006, Mark and his wife, Mary Beth, and their two young children were on a hunting trip outside of Buchanan's Junction in Canada. Mary Beth was sitting in the back of a Chevy pickup truck with their children, armed with her rifle, on a logging road. Mark and a local hunting guide were walking through the nearby woods, hoping to flush out a black bear. Mark started to walk back to the truck while the hunting guide stopped to urinate in the woods. Mark was not wearing an orange hunting hat or vest or anything to improve his visibility. Around 7.55 p.m., Mark came out of the woods and Mary Beth claims that she just saw a large, dark shape and assumed it was a black bear. She fired her rifle and hit Mark, who was approximately 200 feet from the truck Mary Beth and her children were sitting in. Mary Beth told the Royal Canadian Mounted Police that she had looked through her scope twice to confirm what she was seeing was a black bear. She said she didn't see the blue of Mark's pants. According to the pathologist that performed the autopsy, Mark died of a single gunshot wound to the abdomen. The pathologist also theorized that Mark was bending over when he was struck by the bullet. After investigations, Canadian officials issued charges in April of 2008 after years of appeals, Mary Beth was ordered by U.S. District Judge Thomas I. Banaski to surrender to the U.S. Marshal Service on May 14, 2010. She was extradited to Canada to face charges of criminal negligence in her husband's death. She was tried in a Newfoundland and Labrador Supreme Court, and the case was heard without a jury in the courtroom of Judge Richard LeBlanc. A reenactment was used as evidence during the trial, and hunting guide Lambert Green, an owner of the lodge that the Harshbargers stayed at, Reg White, said that what they saw through Harshbarger's scope looked more like an animal than human. Police conducted two reenactments and also came to the conclusion that they just saw a black mass and that it was plausible that she thought she was aiming at a bear. What I was curious about with these reenactments, like, so I'm assuming they just go out at the same location yeah. at the same time using the same scope. And I just want to know who had to, like, lean over in the exact position. Yeah, if he was leaning over, like, he was leaning over to, what, like, tie his shoe? Was he leaning over that way? Pick up something? Yeah, so I was curious about that, so I'm just, like, so it was someone's job to, like, go into the woods and walk out at a certain time while two people looked through a scope. Yeah, and they had to wear probably the similar, like, shades of clothing that the husband yeah. was wearing at the time. Oh, right, yeah. I didn't even think of it. Yeah, they had to be wearing the dark colored clothing and stuff to attest to what they saw. I also wonder like how tall he was oh, yeah. if he resembled a black bear but oh I guess if he was bending over he kind of looked like a bear that's on all fours mm -hmm. that comes up mm. we'll get mm -hmm. there no, we'll get there. myself <laughs> so the prosecution argued however that Mary Beth was aware that her husband and the hunting guide were in the woods and that her husband was wearing dark clothing the defense used the autopsy report stating that Mark was likely leaning over when shot to say that his posture made him look more like an animal from that distance. I think it's so interesting. One of the, I mean, we have so many interesting things about our job, but in 
gunshot wound cases, you can kind of see how a person was positioned based off of mm-hmm. how the bullet went through. Yeah. If their arm was bent, yeah. it could go through like their forearm, their bicep, and then into their chest where the lungs mm-hmm. are. You can see that, what, six, five or six holes there. Right. Or, yeah. Or if they're hunched over in a certain way, you can see how the bullet was and you're like oh they were probably bent over this way doing this i think it's fascinating that's when we kind of like poke and prod with our like bullet probes to kind of find that bullet path Mm -hmm. to determine like how they were when they were shot right yeah because if you i i mean we say this so many times you never bury a bullet so if we know that it's a through and through we need to find the entrance and the exit to confirm that it is a perforating which is a through and through and not a penetrating because if it's a penetrating that means the bullet's still in there and we got to get it out yes you have to account for every hole whether it is a through and through or it's not because that's very important in the autopsy report because if it does go to trial and someone's reading it and they're questioning the pathologist be like oh well what about this hole you didn't write anything about this that could like throw the entire case out the door Mm -hmm. yeah it can get really complicated with if there's multiple Mm -hmm. gunshots and tracing which one went to where and it's a lot of work it's very interesting work trying to find the bullet path yeah based on how you think the body was positioned so several witnesses during the trial suggested that it was too dark for any hunter to have shot with confidence mary beth was ultimately found not guilty and the judge concluded that the prosecution failed to prove that she showed complete disregard for the safety of others and that the death was, quote, a result of an accident and nothing more. There was obviously a lot of controversy surrounding this case. Mark's father, Leonard Harshberger, was quoted in the media as saying, it isn't an accident to mistake someone for something else and kill him. That's a negligent act. There are also reports that Mary Beth and Mark increased both of their life insurances before the hunting trip. Also, after Mark's death, his brother Barry moved in with Mary Beth and they began a relationship. However, after Mary Beth was extradited for trial, Barry started dating another woman. Following Mary Beth's acquittal and return home where Barry was still living, Barry obtained a temporary PFA, Protection from Abuse Act, against Mary Beth claiming he feared for his life. He also claimed that Mary Beth threatened him before with a loaded rifle. However, it's important to note that at the hearing for the PFA, the judge found that Barry's claims were inaccurate exaggerations and were not enough to keep a protection order in place. There is a lot going on here, and I feel like we just scratched the surface. Like, there's so many moving parts in this. Yeah. I mean, me personally... I feel like she kind of did try to kill him on purpose and just got really lucky by getting off and had a really good lawyer. Really? I'm always hesitant with speculation. I don't know. I just like the drama. <laughs> <laughs> it, it gets into the, though we brought this up last episode, um, beyond a reasonable doubt. I know this wasn't a U.S. court. She was tried in Canada, but it's the judge said the prosecution failed to prove that she showed complete disregard for safety and yeah it has to be it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt so yeah there is a doubt so you have to find them not guilty and i'm assuming it's the same in the newfoundland and labrador supreme court but that was the first thing i thought of was it's the prosecution's job to prove beyond a reasonable doubt Mm -hmm. it's tragic though crazy case yeah 
So to end this episode, we tallied a total of eight green flags and only one red flag. So in our opinion, this episode of Body of Proof does pass in terms of forensic accuracy, and it was just plain awesome. I really like this episode. I love this show. I, it's a really good show. I really have to sit down and watch it from start to finish. Yeah, like all the way through. Yeah. How many seasons are there? Maybe two or three. It's not a lot. Yeah, I feel like there's not a lot. It's going to be one of those ones that I binge and get really attached to, and then I have nothing more to watch. And, and I then get you sick. get sad because there's no more, and it's never coming back. And then I get sad. <laughs> it happens to me so many times. So anyway, thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us with any episode suggestions you may have. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye. Bye.